Well, as a church, we have taken a short break from our typical Hebrews sermon series that we've been in for the past handful of months, a little more than a year now, to talk about the state of our nation, our culture, and our approach, what the Word would have to offer and how Christians should live and act today. Called it a path to victory because we believe that it is Jesus who said, That he will build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We expect victory in this march. We believe that he has secured that victory certainly. And that we are to be a part of his kingdom building plan. It will take centuries to reach every nation on this planet. And even when we see momentary defeats, even as we watch an entire generation turn from the Lord... We are to set our hearts and our minds to strategize for the long-term win, because we will win. Over the course of the last three weeks, I began by making the case that the first step in winning this war is for us to acknowledge it is, in fact, a war. We are at war against the God-hating institutions of our land, those who have set themselves to break down what Christ would build up. Second week, I made the case that we must begin with the household of God, that we must hold fast to the truth of the gospel without sway, that we must acknowledge where there has been error in the Christian church and be quick to hold one another accountable to that, and we must not let one lie of the culture enter into our doors, and it is why we are so stubborn in what we allow into this holy place. Last week, we showed how David set Solomon, his son, and his generation up to win in building the temple. The Lord had told him, you're not going to build this temple like you want to build. It's not happening in your generation. But rather than retire, move to Florida, and just collect seashells on the beach or something, he set himself to build up resources for his son's generation to do what he had wanted to do. I believe that we should employ a similar strategy today. While victory is guaranteed, I believe that in our day, our generation has been lost. And by that I mean that the institutions of our land, media, social media, entertainment, arts, uh, this is government and politics, this is commerce, have been taken over by the world. And Christians have almost no influence left in those places. That's what I mean when I say we have lost this generation. If you're holding out hope that somehow the crazy laws that are coming down the pike will be waylaid by Christians coming to the rescue in government, you are sorely mistaken. We do not have the sway there that we once did. Today, we're going to look back to Joshua's generation once again in this series. We're going to be in Joshua chapter 24 in the conclusion of that book. If you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and go there. We're going to read through verses 14 through 28. I'm going to start by praying right now. Uh, then we're going to uh, go through that passage a little bit at a time. I'll give you the backstory first, and I'm going to conclude. Um, I'll be really honest. I had two points of application. Last service, I had to cut out two solid pages. So I'll probably do that for you as well. Um, and we'll end with one application point for today and save that for another time. Let's pray, and we'll we'll dive into this text. Father, we trust your word. 
We know that we are full of folly and, and, and we may confuse things and even misinterpret things. So we need your protection as we read it. Do not let one wicked lie of the world to influence us in our thinking. Don't let the lie of our own flesh influence our thinking about this. But help us to, to, to let your word do exactly what it was designed to do. To shape us. To, to correct us. To train us in righteousness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You might remember the story of Joshua. The people had gone into the promised land and they had laid waste to the many nations that had been there before them. At this point in the story, they had taken the land. The Lord had subdued their enemies and Joshua had even divided it up among the 12 tribes of Israel. We, we walked through the story of after the tribes were split up and two and a half went to the other side of the Jordan River, those who remained on the western side of the Jordan were very concerned that the entire nation would remain faithful to God, and they even were prepared to fight a battle with their own brothers to ensure that that would happen. I'm going to go ahead and start in chapter 24, and I'm going to pull up verse 1 just to show you a little bit of what's going on before we dive into verse 14. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. So he gathers the people after they've already been sent out one more time. This is before the end of Joshua's life. He brings them back together to get on the same page. And for the next 12 verses after this, Joshua recounts the story of how the people were redeemed out of Egypt in the Exodus, brought through a wilderness period into the promised land, and how it was only by the almighty hand of God that they defeated their enemies and got to the point where they are now. This brings us up to verse 14. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. So the first thing that Joshua charges after giving the brief historical account of where they came from and how they got there, the first thing he charges is that they would fear the Lord. Fear God. Fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. This is the starting point for Joshua. This is the starting point of many of the Bible authors. This is a starting point for us as well because Jesus himself repeated this command to Christians even in the new covenant. Fear the Lord. We are to fear God, the one who has the power not only to kill the body but the soul in hell. He tells them to fear. And he tells them in, in that fearfulness that that should motivate them to put away the gods that their father served beyond the river. Beyond the river is just a phrase that He's pointing back to a time prior to Abraham's day when Abraham's family had came from farther away, came from the land of Ur, far in the east. He actually mentioned that earlier in this chapter, in chapter 2 and 3, or verses 2 and 3 rather than this chapter. He explains that, that's, that's them. They used to have all these other gods. Put those gods away, and then he names those in Egypt. The people of Israel had just come out of Egypt a, a generation earlier, and they had picked up a lot of bad habits, even false worship habits that had to be dealt with. Quick note before we move on, that the concern here is not of atheism. The concern is that they would trade the one true God for false gods. I've said before, I don't believe there's any true atheists in the world. Everyone has a God. Your God just might be science or you or government 
But everyone has a God that they worship. And he tells them, put away the false ones and serve the true one. And he continues on. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. This is a very famous passage. No doubt you've heard it before. And for good reason. This event is referred to as the covenant renewal of the people in the days of Joshua. In fact, if you have a little bold kind of highlighted section heads that have been put into your Bible, it might even say something like that. And remember, before the people had begun their campaign of conquest, they gathered in Shechem, in central Israel, and they split the people up onto two mountains, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And and this is what was said about that time. After the people were put up onto the mountainsides there to proclaim the blessings and the curses, it says this in Joshua 8. I'm going to read for you verses 34 through 35. And afterward, he, Joshua, read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. Now they're entering into a new season and it's time to revisit that same kind of covenant renewal. So they do it again. They're preparing to settle the land that has been subdued to occupy. It's a new phase of their mission. They're not to retreat. They're not to go back across the river, Jordan River, into the wilderness again. They are to remain there, and they are to continue to subdue that land, to bring it under their dominion. And so they renew the covenant yet again there. Quick point to make about that verse that I just read. You might have noticed, Joshua, the author here, does not, just say all Israel was there and just leave it. That could have worked. But we see that it is specified that it is all the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. So we would see the picture here. It is every living soul. This is family worship, the household of God gathered together that no one would not be present to hear the word proclaimed. I bet you that was a pretty squirrely worship service. Six hours of reading through the Torah. We're planning to do that next Sunday. I'm kidding. We could and honor the Lord in it and be blessed. The word is good. Joshua here leads from the front in this powerful, recognizable statement, doesn't he? But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Whatever you all do, I'm going this way. I am following him. Look what the people say. Then the people answered, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods, for it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. So the people collectively here, with one voice, declare that they will serve God. We will be faithful like you, Joshua. We will be like your household. 
We choose not these false gods. We choose the true God. When they put that stake in the ground together is the congregation, the people of God in Israel. Now, if you're a proclaimer of truth, if you're a preacher like I am, you think about, man, how awesome would it be you declare something so definitively, definitively from the Lord and the people go, yes, we're with you, you feel pretty excited about that. Yeah, you're moved by that. They're with it. They wanted to do that. That's not how Joshua replies. Joshua says to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. Evidently, Joshua is a realist. He knows that by mere momentary affirmation, the people will not be able to remain faithful to God. They don't have it in them. Even their faithfulness will not be a result of their personal resolve. And the same is true for you and me today. Even the faith that you need to be saved and to remain saved is a gift from God. There's no point that the Lord goes, whew, it's a good thing you drew on the courage to remain faithful. All is supplied by him. So then we stand before the Lord in glory in eternity we get to say everything necessary for my eternal joy and your glory came from you, O Lord, not from me. So that no man may boast. I want you to notice the statement he says here. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. This is the seriousness of the holiness, the jealousy of God. I read from one commentator that he called this perhaps the most shocking statement in the Old Testament. You know, so many people today just want to say, why doesn't God just forgive? Just forgive. Like, count nothing against the wrongs that have been committed. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. Only a wicked judge does not hold the murderer accountable. Our God would be wicked if he were to overlook and forgive all sins without punishment. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. Now, just because we're so used to New Testament, you need to hear this. Does this mean that God will not forgive those who sin? And those who come to him in humble repentance, brokenhearted because of their sin? Of course not. Absolutely not. In fact, Joshua has already made it clear to the people that God has provided a way for them to be forgiven for their sins. Built into the law was not just a demand for perfection, but an understanding that when the people failed, here is how you get the forgiveness of God. You atone for that sin through the blood sacrifice. That's how you do it. Of course you can be forgiven. You need to repent and come in faithfulness before the Lord. If the people did not repent and faithfully turn back to the Lord, however, he would not overlook their sins. He is a God of his word. And for the record, this meaning is evidenced by the next verse. You see it? If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you 
after having done you good. You want those gods? You can have them. So what's in mind here? And what's helpful for us all to acknowledge is that all of us sin before the Lord. This is true of all of us. You're not able to serve the Lord. Who are you? He's a holy God. He's a jealous God. You and I, because of our sin, have caused a separation between us and him. A great chasm because of our sinfulness. And every one of us has done it. Whether we say it's a little bit or a lot, we have made that breach of faith. We have committed treason against the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we deserve eternal, lasting punishment. But God demonstrates his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He has provided a way for us to have his forgiveness. And it is offered freely to all through the single condition that we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the way he has provided for salvation, by faith in Jesus. Forgiveness of sins is granted to us. You deserve judgment. You and I both. We deserve his wrath. That is hell for forever. Eternal conscious torment separated from God. All of you and your children someday after you. All of us deserve this. But in his goodness, he has provided a way to atone for sins. And he sent his perfect son to this earth to live a perfect life, a flawless life, the only one deserving of eternal life, while we deserve death. But at the end of his life and ministry here, Jesus offers us a trade. He says, I will take the death you earned, and you can have the life I earned. And the work necessary is that you believe Believe, and you will be forgiven of all of your sins. You think that you're a wicked person. You are. You are wicked. Yes, all of those sins are terrible and awful, and there's a reason for your shame and your guilt. But in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. That means that he has forgiven the sins, past, present, future, for all who have saving faith in him alone. It's not I, Lord. Who have done this worthy thing, but your son who has died for my sins. You need to know today if you do not repent of your sins, that punishment due to you remains. If you continue to run to the open arms of false gods, false idols that seek your affection, your attention, if you love something else more than God, punishment awaits. Repent of your sins and turn in faith to Jesus and be saved. If you're not a believer today and you're hearing this and you need to know more about this, talk to someone before you leave. Ask any person next to you, if, if any believer at this church will talk to you about this. You just, just ask them. And they'll spend the rest of the day with you and help you understand. Because we don't deserve salvation. But our God is good. He is jealous. But if we turn to him, we can have peace. And the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, you're witness against yourselves that you've chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. 
He said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God we will serve and his voice we will obey. You need to see this, that all throughout the history of the Bible, it never tells us when you identify the idols in your life, just spend less time with them. If there's something in your life that is robbing you of the joy of the Lord, something in your life that is stealing affection and attention from God, he is not pleased with you keeping it in your life just a little bit. Get it out and gone. Put the foreign gods that are among you away. Get rid of them. They seek to destroy you and your home. Turn in full faith to the Lord. So now Joshua has gotten the people to repeatedly confirm their covenant promises with God. You see this? Not just once, not just twice, three times they have said, we will serve the Lord, we will serve the Lord. We're witnesses to that. It wasn't flippant. There was a thought in mind here. There was reason. This is what Joshua says next. Joshua, so Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and he set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. Joshua again provides a stern warning. He points to that rock. Don't forget what we talked about here. Don't you dare deal falsely with God. This rock will remember. Joshua warns the people. Do you know what? This warning was effective. Let me show you, let me show you just later in this chapter, verse 31. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. They did. They died faithful. This generation of warriors died faithful. They were not perfect. We know their blights. We know their sins. But they did die faithful God-lovers. We want the same for our day now. This warning worked. It was used by God to preserve the people to the end of their generation. Now, why is this in the Bible? It does record history. This, this happened just like it says. I believe every word of how this went down, it, it looked just like that. It was true. It's been preserved for us today. But this story ultimately is designed to point us to our ultimate Savior, Jesus. Did you know that Joshua was not his birth name? He was born Hosea or Hosea in some of your, your spellings in, in English. That was his name. And Moses changed his name back in Numbers, I think it was Numbers 23, changed his name to, to a different name. And he gave him the name Joshua. Moses wasn't his father. In fact, he had a father. His name was Nun. He was Joshua, the son of Nun. And Moses steps in and changes Joshua, Hosea's name to Joshua. And he calls him this. And do you know what Joshua means? The Lord saves. Furthermore, do you know how you would pronounce Joshua in the New Testament? Yeshua. 
Jesus. Jesus is the Greek version of Joshua in the Old Testament. It's the same name. In other words, Jesus was named after Joshua. So so when Gabriel delivers the the message to Mary and to Joseph, and you're going to have a a child, his name shall be Jesus. His name shall be Emmanuel and eventually named Jesus. He doesn't go, oh, and run run to God in heaven and say, ha, hey God, did you realize there's already a Joshua? Yeah, that was the plan. Because... He is the ultimate Joshua. He is the Lord who saves. Jesus. He's the Lord who saves. Jesus gathered his people to him just as Joshua did. And just like Joshua, who commanded the people to remain faithful to God and to subdue the land, Jesus commanded his disciples at the end of his earthly life and ministry to remain faithful to God and to go out into the new promised land and settle it. All the nations to the end of the earth. His great commission is literally the same kind of thing we see here from Joshua at the end of Joshua's life. The fact that you and I have heard the gospel and that we believe it today is a testament to the fact that Jesus' disciples obeyed his great commission and spread the gospel to the nations and beyond. I want to close this morning just with, I think we'll have time perhaps just for one point of application and I'll push the next into another week. Joshua says in this famous line here, in verse 15, Choose this day whom you will serve, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I grew up in Christian households, and so I've seen this like on placards inside of homes all my life. There are a lot of Christianese kind of verses that we like to post up and put up, put up and a lot of them are so out of context that if you read the Bible and look at them on the wall, you go, why would you have that one? This is one that I think rightly should be on the walls of homes, okay? This is one of those that I go, hey, I think, we, I think Christianese got it right in this one, okay? I, I, I think that because Joshua is saying that irrespective of what those outside of his household will go and do, he will take charge of his household. He will bear responsibility for his home and ensure that they collectively serve the Lord. Did you notice how Joshua assumes the faithfulness of his family as though it were a single unit? Joshua does not think so individualistically to say that he will remain faithful and he hopes the same for his wife but can't expect much out of his kids. Surely they will have to go sow their wild oats. Like, doesn't everybody do that? I mean, go unfaithful for a season and then back? Why is it that he thinks this way? Why is it that he can say this kind of thing? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Because a family is designed to be a single unit. And it is supposed to multiply out for generations. When Jesus says in the New Testament, in places like Matthew 10, that families will turn on one another, he's not saying that it is expected within Christian households. It's not his, that's not his meaning. He says this because when someone in a non-believing family gets saved, he or she should expect 
opposition, even from those who are closest to them. I hope that you have picked up on what we've been saying here over the past several weeks, that we have a responsibility to build a legacy, and that Christians have far too long thought so individualistically that we've not seen the priority of the household, of the family. Your single highest priority in missions, that's evangelism, and discipleship is inside of your home. It's before you leave for work in the morning. That's your highest priority. After your personal relationship with Jesus, after you loving and honoring the Lord, your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, what is the second greatest commandment? To love your neighbor as yourself. This does not mean that we clamber over our wife and our children, brothers. Leave them for the wolves as we go out to do the work in the world. Listen, I've been, a, I've been in a Christian household and, 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 uh, all my life. And I've spent so many times with brothers, especially, across coffee tables, uh, in my time in pastoral ministry, and just as, as, a, as a fellow Christian brother, and so many times I've felt this idea conveyed that my job is to go do gospel work out there and just pray that something else works out back here. Maybe they'll just see by example that I'm such a missionary out there Brothers and sisters, that is not the way the Bible talks. It's just not the way it's supposed to go. Your biggest mission field is your home. This is why the plan is for Christians to get married, make babies, lots of them, raise them to be Christians, to laugh at the lies of the world, and multiply. That's what we're supposed to do. Brothers and sisters, we must regain ownership of our families. I've been saying for weeks now that I believe the God-hating world has taken control of every institution in our nation. How are they successful? For a variety of reasons, no doubt, not least of which is that more than a generation ago, enemies of Jesus set out on a concerted plan to go after the kids. And it worked. It worked. But that was not the first step. Because our enemy knew that in order to gain control over our children, he had to first weaken the family, undermine the household. Jesus once said that before a strong man's house can be plundered, the strong man must first be bound. Okay? He draws on this because it's so evidently true. You, you know this. Now, when Jesus said that, he was actually saying that of himself. He's going to bind Satan and take over Satan's home. It's awesome. But Satan himself knows that that is true. That if you bind the strong man, you then can plunder his home. Brothers and sisters, we must regain a right ordering of the household. Ladies, let me begin with you. The world has undermined the glorious, blessed, essential responsibilities of moms to raise their kids to love and honor God. Spreading that lie into our culture was an essential part of the plan to get the kids. Have you heard it said that one of the most dangerous places on the planet is between a mother bear and her cubs? How do you lay a finger on the cubs? Distract the mother. If she's in the picture, you will die if you touch that cub. 
remove the mom and the cubs are yours. That's exactly what the world has done. It was intentional. And this is nothing novel. No new enemy arose in the early 20th century to devise this newfangled plot. It has been this way since the beginning. It is the very same strategy, exactly the same strategy that the serpent used in the garden. He lied to the woman. And what did he lie to her about? You can be something other than what God made you to be. You can be something more. You too can be God. That's literally the first lie in the Bible. 1 Timothy 2 tells us Eve bought it. She believed the lie. Adam was not ignorant. And he stood there and listened to the lie go to his wife and said nothing. She was ignorant. He was not. This is what it says. 1 Timothy 2.15. And this is, why, this is why the first sin is laid at the feet of Adam. It's because of Adam's sin. Why? She was lied to. He knew. And he did nothing. That's the lie. That going contrary to what God made women to be is more. It's better for you, women. It is better for you to be what the world wants you to be, what your flesh wants you to be, rather than what God wants you to be. This is so foolish. To trivialize the role of a mother at home is like belittling the role of the drill instructors who train every warrior that gets sent to the battlefield. Have you thought of that? When the world says, oh, so what do you do? For, what do you work? Oh, I stay at home with my, my kids. I'm a, a stay-at-home mom. Oh. Can you imagine someone saying that in battle? So when the war kicked off, what did you do? I trained every single person who went so they would fight and die. That's all. Mothering is a front lines occupation. When we put family and households in their rightful place of priority, suddenly the woman's role as homemaker and child rearer doesn't seem so inferior, menial, degrading, frivolous anymore. In fact, I think, I think that godly women who will not believe one lie of the world are our secret weapon. I have four daughters. And we must raise them to be warriors who will not believe the lies of that serpent anymore. While the world goes on thinking, this is, this is the best part of this. You can pause the video for a second. Here's the strategy. While the world thinks, leave it going, I'm kidding, don't, don't pause it. While the world goes on thinking that Christians belittle women, that we think less of our daughters than our sons, we're going to be building an army of sister warriors who will strike a crippling blow against the enemy. We have got to think rightly about women. I talk a lot to you brothers, a lot to you men. I am a man. That's why I think that way. I, I, I bring this to bear often with you. I do believe that it is your chief responsibility to lead in your household. But one of your chief responsibilities in the household sphere is to set your wife up to win at her critical role. That's what you're to do. 
Our world is totally lost on sexuality and gender roles. I don't think I need to prove that to you. And Christians have gotten so caught up in the mess that in many ways we have forfeited our ability to be a voice of reason. We have fallen into the ditch on both sides of the road from buying into the lies of feminism on one side to overreacting to them on the other. Mission Church is a complementarian church. If you don't know what that means, that simply means that we believe that God has designed men and women to be equal in value, but different than one another. Did you know that boys and girls are different? Did you know that? Can't be taken for granted any longer. And those differences are designed by God to complement one another. And human flourishing can only be found when men and women are operating in their God-given roles. So we believe that men are commanded by Jesus to be the spiritual heads of their households, bear responsibility and authority there. And we believe that wives are commanded by Scripture to submit to their husbands. And we, we believe that it is super clear in the Bible that only men are to be pastors in churches. It's crazy how many churches are failing on that point. But some people wrongly picture this paradigm as though it were a football game where the men are on the field scoring points and winning games while the women are the cheerleaders. But this is not what the Bible says about the role of women. They are on the field with us, just in different positions. It's a whole bunch of different positions that play on the field to win the game. And men, sometimes the way that you best serve the kingdom is to give the ball to your wife, then block so that she can score. You're bigger than her. Go knock down that defensive line and let her dive into the end zone. This is how we score. This is how we win. And few places is this more eminently true than in the unique role of mothering. Can you not tell? She's so gifted, designed to do that in a way that you can't. And obviously, biologically, but beyond that, she is suited to do things in such a way that only a woman can. No man can ever be a mother. And no woman can ever be a father. Brothers, when you establish a disciplined household and demand that your children honor and respect their mother and build her homeschooling cabinets and shelves and provide her a generous budget for buying books and training tools, both for the kids and to build her own skills, you help her score and you both win. For the father who's not doing these things, he cannot rightly say, as for me and my house, we serve the Lord. Did you know in Greek, the word for household is oikia, and that's uh, even in the Old Testament, when it's translated in Greek, that same word is used right here. And it refers to far more than just a house with a roof and walls and windows and a little you know, chimney with the smoke coming out. And it also refers more to, to more than just mommy, daddy, kids. 
That term for household includes all of those who are part of that community. That, that, means, that means extended family. And it means even the servants who work within that household are part of that oikia. So, those who don't have children, singles, and couples who don't have kids. For those of the world who don't have kids, they, honestly, listen to me, this is bleak, they have no hope at a lasting legacy. Their hope is just whoever gets inheritance or hears from them that somehow they do something with that and pass it along to their kids. They have no genuine hope for legacy, those in the world. But for those who are in Christ, you are a part of the household of God. You have the biggest, richest household that there is with a billion kids running around. Luke 18, 29 through 30, Jesus says this, and he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers, or parents, or children, for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. So here, here and now, you saw all the family names there, brother, sister, husband, wife, we see, we see house. Many more have been given to you now. Those in Christ's body who don't have children of their own are a critical part of legacy building. Single people too, same. You too are an essential part of our legacy building machine. You are to set an example of faithfulness for those of the next generation who will not get married or not have children. You are to engage every bit as much in the infrastructure building that will be necessary for future wins. You are to encourage and support your children in the faith that you've adopted into your heart and life and their parents who need your help. You are to leverage your station in life to reach people that you are uniquely suited to reach. You do realize that there are non-believers who are both single and married without children, right? You get that. Perhaps God has you in the station of life right now so that you can evangelize those who would be more likely to build relationships with you than the family of eight down the block. The Lord knows what he's doing. But the world will lie to you and it will tell you that your life should be all about you. Ah, you don't have the burden of kids. You don't have the burden of a spouse. You can go do whatever you want. Make yourself happy. Fulfill your dreams. It's not what you are to do. You are to have your dreams be our dreams. But the next generation of Christians would flourish until our king returns. You are as much responsible for legacy building as your childbearing counterparts. We are eager to help you get involved in doing that. Grandparents. Is it interesting how many times in the Old Testament we see the, 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 the phrase, your children and your children's children? In fact, the Old Testament especially continually gives challenge, like charge even, to people to pour into their children and their children's children. I'll read you one place. Deuteronomy 4.9. Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. That's your grandkids. You're commanded by God to pour into your kids and your grandkids. If you have Christian kids, this should be far easier for you to do. But if you don't have Christian kids, this is going to be a bit of a challenge, isn't it? 
But there are ways that you are expected to build faith into your grandkids. Even if your Christian legacy skips a generation. That is painful when it happens. But you don't stop pouring into grandkids. You don't stop providing a way, praying for those kids. Even if your kids won't allow you to engage with your grandkids, you just keep praying that an opportunity would be had. You get strategic and think about ways that you can be an influence so that maybe someday when they become adults in their lives and they can have a relationship with you, perhaps they will. Perhaps you can pour into those who will have relationships with them. Find the, find the Christian family who lives on their block and you be the grandkids for that family for a while. You pour into them so that they will become friends of your non-Christian kids and grandkids and perhaps continue working on your legacy after you're gone. That's what we call investment. There's so much to be said. I think I said earlier here, 